Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Mapping the College Edition, a podcast where we explore the landscape of the college theater world and try to demystify this daunting audition process. I'm your host, Charlie Murphy, director of MTCA. That's Musical Theater College Auditions. And today we've got Tom Kitt on the show. What a get, Tom Kitt. I first met Tom, as you'll hear on the show, when doing a production of Shakespeare in the Park over a decade ago, where Tom was the composer of the incidental music. We'll talk about that a bit on the show. He was already pretty famous and amazing at the time, but only got more so in the time to come. And you're going to hear about us talk about it on the show, but he was just the most normal and humble guy you'd ever meet. Just chilling in a baseball cap and t-shirt kind of vibe. Uh, Really the easiest guy to talk with. And you would think he was just like a random accompanist and not the Igapata winner already by that point. So we're going to talk about confidence a bit in the show. And I'll talk about it a bit at the end as well. But boy, is it wonderful to be confident with that kind of easy humility that Tom has as well. Uh, In the MTCA world, uh, thank you to all at Junior Workshop. It was so good to see so many of our podcast listeners there. For those who missed it, my apologies again on the late notice. We will be doing one of these again in a few months. Those are the junior workshops for us to meet new families who potentially want to work with MTCA. Um, For MTCA students and our other college auditioners out there, Unifieds is coming up in, oh, just a few weeks, Um, really just a week for New York City Unifieds as you guys hear this. I'm so excited to see all of you there. I'll be in New York, Chicago, and LA. Please come say hi if you're a podcast listener. I love um, hearing from fans, and it's just very nice for my ego, for my confidence to get a little bit of that. Um, but other than that, I'm sending so much love to all of you as you're in your big prime audition seasons. Please don't forget all that wonderful psychological prep we've been talking about. Um, I'll also say for any listeners who are not yet MTCAers, if you're a senior, if you're class of 2024, please feel free to join us for our next few webinars. If you're feeling a little overwhelmed, with the process or just you want to get a little extra insight a little uh, additional help we're going to talk about scholarship negotiation we're going to talk about narrowing down your decisions as well as the all-important waitlist navigation which really is tricky so please tune in for those they are open to all um, as for me, I'm good. You're going to hear my voice is a little bit scratchy. Uh, one of the upcoming episodes, which we recorded last week, I sound like a true monster, but I'm slowly making my way back. I don't think it's too bad in this episode, but that one, well, it gets a lot worse. So you have that in your future. Um, but uh, my family's good. We are doing some potty training at the moment, which is just crazy. We traveled cross country last weekend and made double digit trips to an airplane bathroom. It's truly everybody's dream, right? That's the uh, hashtag dad life, as we call it. Um, And speaking of dad life, we get into some fun dad life stuff in this episode. So I hope you enjoy. Let's get to it. Well, we are so excited to be joined by Tom Kitt today. Tom has a BA from Columbia University in Economics. We'll chat about that. He is a composer, arranger, orchestrator, music supervisor, producer, so many hyphens. Um, He's composed shows like Next to Normal, Almost Famous, Flying Over Sunset, If Then, High Fidelity, Freaky Friday, many more. He's done um, ranging and music supervision for shows like American Idiot, Jagged Little Pill. He was an acapella arranger for Pitch Perfect, the movie. Um, he's won Pulitzer, Grammy, Tony, and Emmy Awards. That's a full Egypt, I think. If we're, uh, <laughs> maybe we count the outer critic circle and we can call it an Egypt if you want. You know. um, he's also a founding member of Muse, that's Musicians United for Social Equity, with multiple-time friend of the pod, Michael McElroy, and NYC Next. He's also a father of three, including a graduating high school senior, which we'll talk a little bit about on the show. It's also a very handsome man. Tom, anything we missed there? Welcome on the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. We're discovering a New York Knicks fan, which is very exciting. I promise podcast guests we won't do another 10 minutes on NBA basketball. I promise them. <laughs> They're sick of it. Uh, well, I'd love to start, Tom, if you can kind of journey back with me to 16, 17-year-old Tom, who yeah. ends up uh, going to Columbia. But I'd love to sort of think about, like, what were you viewing college as back then? You know, basically in the different paths of what you could have seen your life. Obviously, some of it might have been being an economist or whatever you do with an economics degree. Um, But, you know, where did music, where did theater play into that? And sort of what were you looking for from the college experience as you approached college for yourself? 
Well, when I was 16, 17, at that point, I had um, uh, sort of immersed myself into uh, pop rock piano driven uh-huh. music. Um, you were a piano I, player yourself at that point. Well, I, 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 so I studied, started playing the piano when I was four uh-huh. and I got uh, classical lessons. Yep. And then when I was, I would say probably 12, 13 at a summer camp, um, I discovered sort of early, early Billy Joel music. Uh-huh. Um, those, those first albums, which were so pianistic. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I just was sort of gobsmacked by, by the arrangements and the sound, um, which led me to Elton John. And even though I had loved the Beatles um, at that point, um, immersing myself into the sort of piano driven songs, uh-huh. Simon and Garfunkel. So um, this was all bubbling and it formed in me this dream of becoming a singer songwriter. Uh-huh. So 16, 17, I was starting to write songs. I'd been writing music my whole life, but mm-hmm. I started to try to write songs with lyrics and dream of becoming a, a, a singer songwriter. And so college to me was as, as much about um, where that can happen, where I can continue to pursue that dream uh-huh. in New York City, of course. Being, being in New York. Yeah. Um, an amazing place to be. And are parents influencing this too? Or are they saying, hey, you got to get a BA. You're, you're obviously smart enough to get into Columbia. Don't waste that brain of yours. If you want to go try singing song, like, is that, are you getting that kind of pressure from parents? Was there any, any version of you thought about maybe I want to go to a conservatory and study more music or, or that kind of thing? Um, they were, my parents were incredibly supportive and I have, I'm the youngest of three. So my brother and sister had already been through this. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I had been dreaming of college uh, just because I saw it happen in front of me with my with my siblings. My father actually has an interesting history. He's a former New York Yankee pitcher. He was um, a left-handed fireballing phenom who was signed out of high school. And then he ended up working in antitrust for a number of years. Uh-huh. So it was his guidance really to say, um, nothing would make me happier than for you to pursue a life in the arts. But um, I think it would make sense for you to have something to fall back on and okay. And he's a great brain. Economics and yep. um, I didn't know much about it, About um, took some economics in high school, but um, I really loved the major. And the best thing about it was showing up for, for college. I was a little bit of a mess. Um, uh-huh. In high school, I was distracted. You mentioned the Knicks. Uh, nights where I should have been studying for exams were me putting on the Knicks game and uh-huh. oh, I'll just do it later. I'll do it later. And then it would never happen. Yep. So um, going to college really... Um, meet, meeting the, the student body, many of my friends who are still dear to me to this day, and of course, meeting my wife, Rita, I just became mm-hmm. a more serious person in all respects. Uh-huh. And, and if you're going to major in economics, you can't sort of sleepwalk your way through it. Yeah. Um, you can't be I'm watching the Knicks all day. Courses yeah. like macroeconomics and yep. statistics um, and econometrics that um, I just knew that I was going to have to become a much more serious person. One of those you made up, right? One of those is a made up word that you just were testing. No, no, no. I wish. Econometrics, that's real? Econometrics, yeah. And it's as scary as it sounds. Wow. Um, (laughs) This is why we study theater by the advice guys. No, but so other than the sort of personal growth, that's awesome. And and I think, you know, um, we talked about that actually last episode, I was talking about that a little bit with our students of like, you know, what the purpose of college is that's not just about acting, singing, dancing, training for a lot of people who are pursuing BFAs in terms of personal growth and where you are in the world and all that great stuff. Uh, other than that, from the Columbia experience, what did you get musically? I, I saw there was some acapella in there, which I guess was some possible prep for, for Pitch Perfect. But were you, you know, using really the city outside of college? Were you using college resources? How were you sort of continuing what would be then your ultimate career? Well, there were a few really important things that happened. Uh, the first, I, I mentioned classical music as being something that I started out with, and then in, in high school, I was less interested in it. And getting going to college and taking courses on Beethoven and Mozart um, and uh, a number of other courses I took, um, it, it sort of pulled me back into that world. And especially mm-hmm. as an aspiring composer, I just found it opened up um, a kind of new um, language for me to draw from okay. that I hadn't appreciated in a certain way. Um, and, and, and so I got a lot out of the music education yeah. at Columbia. Um, and then also I, when I arrived at Columbia, I wasn't necessarily dreaming of being a composer for the theater. Yes. I was meeting Rita who introduced me to Brian Yorkie uh-huh. and then getting involved with the varsity show, which is a student driven student written uh, musical 
that's happened uh, really since the years of Rogers and Hart uh-huh. um, meeting at Columbia. So um, it's got this long history and writing the shows with Brian, that's what lit the fire in me to pursue uh, a life as a composer for the theater. So I don't know if that would have happened if I hadn't been at yeah. Columbia at that time. But the aspiration really from Jump was to be a composer, to pursue music. It might have been to could be a pop singer, songwriter, composer. But you were going to try to write music from 18. That, yeah. You knew that already. And then and then uh, along with Mozart and Beethoven, I took a one, there's a wonderful professor, sadly he passed, but Mark Tucker, who taught a class on Duke Ellington and a, and a class mm. on jazz that... Um, were, were incredibly important and transformative for me. There was a yeah. class called um, Music of the U.S. where um, you got to dive into Charles Ives and Aaron Copeland. And um, so all of these things were washing over me and kind of expanding my palette of where I could draw from as an artist. Yep. And so you, and you mentioned Brian Yorkie, with whom you're going to write the huge hit that is next to normal, giving you a lot of the E's and G's and P's and T's um, that you're getting in those awards. Um, what was his timing in terms of, were you guys writing this in school, right after school? How did that work in terms of timing of graduation to, oh my gosh, now you're a, 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 a megastar? Well, Brian actually graduated with Rita in 1993. So the first show we wrote, 1994, I was a sophomore and Brian was a year out of school, but Brian was living up at Columbia and actually working for Miller Theater. So he was on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he pretty much stayed at that position, pursuing his other, not just writing for the theater, but other writing projects he had mm-hmm. until I graduated in 1996. Yep. And then the two of us decided we wanted to continue writing musicals and and we had the aspiration of one day getting to Broadway. So we applied to the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, which uh-huh. many people had said was a transformative experience um, and, and highly educational um, world to, to be in. So we applied, we got rejected the first year, mm-hmm. we applied again, and we got in. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a timing aspect, you know, if then came out of this idea of where are you in, in a certain moment, you look mm-hmm. at a moment that's, we, we always faded to kind of, arrive where you are and um not just the being at columbia with rita and brian but also then being in the bmi musical theater workshop with writers like bobby lopez mm-hmm. and green curtis moore and tom miser and jeff marks um it, it was an incredible group and if we had gotten in that first year whole different group who knows yep and 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 especially because amanda and i um from the beginning i i was a musical her musical director for her uh-huh. cabaret show, which led to us writing together. So all of these important things happened just just by fate. Yep, that's so cool. Well, and I'd love to talk a little bit about some of these different jobs that you end up holding. You know, I mean, they're all, I guess, related in some ways in that they're all musical, right? But like, if you thought I want to be a singer-songwriter, maybe originally, and then you go, maybe that means a composer for the musical theater, how does that then jump to being a music supervisor or an arranger or an orchestrator was that all stuff you're just like yes and i can figure out how to do this i know how to compose or i know what music is or i guess you know it's a lot of different titles that you've held and it seems like as i look at it not everybody who does one does all the things the way that it seems like you do well i, I learned early on that the more skills you have the more not just exciting jobs you will be eligible for but also it's about creating a life in the arts that that feeds you and also literally feeds you uh-huh, <laughs> you can uh-huh. support yourself another really important wonderful friend that i made at columbia um noah cornman noah after he graduated started working with kurt deutsch and melissa justin at Chickaboom records mm-hmm. and Chickaboom was doing these wonderful concerts they would do holiday concerts or something you know maybe in the spring but but they were always um, emceed and an opportunity for some of the most exciting talent in theater to perform. And, and they always had a house band uh-huh. and a musical director. And I got into musical directing these shows where Sherry Renee Scott would perform and Adam Pascal and Alice Ripley and Michael McElroy, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and, and BIV. So, so I was making all these connections and Mario Cantone would often emcee the concert mm-hmm. and then he would perform as well, which led to me becoming Mario's musical director. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the first music supervision, arranging, orchestrating jobs that I got to do was on Laugh Horror, Mario's um, show, that Broadway show, I think in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, another product I was pulled into was a product that Sherry Renee Scott and Dick Scanlon were working on, which became Everyday Rapture. Uh-huh. And working on Everyday Rapture with Michael Mayer, then 
brought on American Idiot. So mm-hmm. it's like laying the groundwork. One thing leads to another, leads to another. And the more rooms you put yourself into and hopefully succeed, the more it's going to lead to. Yep. Well, and it seems like there is a, a version of yes ending that, you know, obviously these are all amazing opportunities that you're saying yes to, but I could see some people say, I want to stay in the lane that is composing my own stuff. I don't necessarily, in working on this other pe- person stuff, that would take away from that lane. And it seems like you've been able to really fuel and add to, and well, now, my, you know, all these differences you do. Yeah, my, my, my philosophy is is just any room where you can learn from and grow mm-hmm. is a room mm-hmm. you should try to be in. And yep. to say, oh, I can only be doing this, you have to find the time. And and there are moments where I'm writing where a project will be on hold for a little bit and I need something else uh-huh. to, to sort of, you know, draw inspiration from. So what better thing to draw from than another exciting project? Yep. And, and and as long as it's taking a creative part of you, yep. um, that's that's everything. That's so cool. Well, and just for those who may not be quite as up to date on all the different terms, including myself, who, you know, I'm not sure I could describe to find all the intricacies. What is the difference in terms of skill set of like what you're doing? Maybe I guess we understand what a composer is, and maybe that's as opposed to like a lyricist at times. But how is that different from when you've been a music supervisor or like an arranger or an orchestrator? What are those different, like, how do we define those different jobs within a show or within a different project? Well, I think music supervisor can mean different things depending on the project. For me, on shows like American Idiot Mm -hmm. and Jagged Little Pill and Head Over Heels and and SpongeBob, um, it's really to oversee the the musical team and the process Uh that brings the show to fruition. Um, And in in those cases, because you have Alanis Morissette or Green Day who are very much have very busy lives being rock stars and yep. are you know global phenomenons um they can't always be in the room and, and yep. so it, you need someone who's speaking for the music team kind of acting as a voice of the composer uh-huh. even though you're not the composer um and also helping to shape and create the show in its entirety which means transitions underscoring reprises it's not just the songs yeah um, and then that will naturally uh, lead to arranging work because in right. getting those songs uh, adapted for the musical, they will take on new arrangements because of different instruments, new characters different, yep. who are singing the songs, um, yep. vocal arrangements. So once you have those song arrangements done, then that naturally feeds into the orchestrations where you're actually writing the parts uh-huh. for the band that you're going to have. So, yep. so that's been a very natural process for me. Um, but I know that that's how I've come to define it. It can yeah. mean different things for different projects. And is that not odd, I guess, in some ways? Like if you're rearranging some of these, you know, uh, of course I got to really look at Jagged closely, but some of these absolute hit songs, now you're in charge of sort of like, hey, let me re, let me mess with this a little bit and you show it back to Alanis and then then she goes, yes, I like what you've done with my song. <laughs> Isn't that kind of weird? Like, look, I've beautiful wedding dress. I've made some edits. How do you think about this? Like, is that not an odd experience to be, especially in some of these cases, these are like mega celebrities that you're, you know, saying, here's this platinum hit that I've made better for the theater or whatever. Well, only here's something that I have, um, you know, done done work on creatively uh, in terms of the story that we're telling. Yep. Um, and things read differently on stage than they do in a studio. So um, it's never to to change for change sake or make it. Something. I got some notes. Let me just you know make it a little little popular. No, I think it, I can. Yeah. It's just to serve just to serve the story yeah. um, and find new colors that 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 help with the adaptation. And I, yeah. I've often said you know Green Day and Lannis Morissette they're doing just fine without Tom. They Kitt. sure are. Yeah. But if Tom Kit can come and help, um, and, and, and with my knowledge of, of theater, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I came up with a with an example yesterday. I was talking. Um, to a group of artists, and um, I, I, I mentioned the song "Candle in the Wind" by Elton uh-huh. John, one of my favorite uh-huh. songs. And there's a studio version of "Candle in the Wind" where it's performed with the band and, and beautiful soaring um, harmonies. And then there's a version that I love, which I think they played on the radio quite a bit in the early '90s, which uh-huh. was a version of him just on the piano, recorded live in all um, in Australia with uh, when he did a concert with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Uh-huh. Um, and if you look at those two different versions of Candle in the Wind and you thought about a musical, they, they give you very different information musically. Yes. So in the first version, if there's a maybe a big moment where somebody is in front of people or is, is declaring this in a grand way, you use a studio version. If it's a more intimate sort of uh-huh. vulnerable moment, maybe you use 
the you're drawing from the the live version. So yeah. that's kind of what I think about. You know, you take the song and say, here's the information that the world has received about the song. Now, how does it need to translate in the musical? Yeah, it's so cool. And you know, I really got to experience that with Jagged going, I know and like these songs as the pop songs they are, but then you really love them and take them on in a different, it's a different song. I mean, it's the same song, but it's a different, you get such a different impact. And now I'm so used to hearing them in the musical when I hear it on the radio or whatever, I go, that's, what's that song? That's so, it's like a completely, even though it's, that was the original thing. It's, it's cool to see that art can sort of um, have that many different containers. The best compliment I got was on stage uh, when Alanis Morissette was performing at the Apollo theater around the time the Jaguar Pill was open opening. She talked about the arrangements on stage and she, she said, in, I won't say for the podcast, but she, she said an expletive uh-huh. and said, you know, beep you tom kid i can't uh-huh. get these you know i i, I get all of your of arrangements in my head and i don't know which way to go one mine, yeah that was her way of saying like she you know these arrangements now have become part of her and she loves them and yeah um so that was an amazing that's so, compliment. that's so cool well and that leads me to i mean i had to ask about you've worked with some just mega celebrities you know from theater celebrities that we all know and love like dina or lynn or whatever but also like i mean alanis morissette cameron crow you just worked with yeah. i mean Obviously, some of these, you know, when you were working with Lynn or whatever, maybe it wasn't quite the same household name that he's going to become at the time. But now that you're traveling in these circles regularly, like, how do you handle interactions and collaborations? And Like, you know, especially when you have to work together so closely artistically, do you ever have that starstruck feeling? Do you ever feel like, oh, my God, I'm still a fan of you. And here we are working side by side. What What is that like? And how do you handle that as an artist? Always. You're always starstruck. Uh-huh. Um, recently for me. Um, joining the team of Hell's Kitchen, working with Alicia Keys, Adam Blackstone. Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. Um, yep. You know, there's a moment when you walk in the room and you're just kind of like, wait, how did I get here? Now Alicia Keys. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you're yep. just so in awe. And then you have a job to do. And if you belong in that room, you're there to offer important creative uh-huh. energy. Um, uh-huh. So so you kind of just get past the fan part of you and the starstruck part of you and then try to just talk as collaborators. And if yeah. you can see that part of it, then you're going to be okay. I love that phrase, if you belong in that room. So if we zero in on that, what made you feel like you belonged in that room? Like, d- d- which came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, do you feel like you belonged as a composer and that lets you write next to normal? Or do you get a next to normal and then you get some awards and that makes you feel like you belong? Like, how did you find, I mean, you're talking about a kind of confidence that I think many artists, even if they do belong in those rooms, don't always feel that I have a voice that should come up and that I, I should be able to speak in it. How did you find that confidence to go, I belong in this room? Well, I think that I just always aspire to be in those rooms. And if I want to be um, the kind of artist that I dreamed of being, um, I want to do great things in the mm-hmm. world or um, ambitious things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the confidence comes from the ambition and, um, mm-hmm. But of course, you need support and you need people to to be there and tell you that the work matters. And uh-huh. uh, I remember early on with American Idiot, I wanted to just put the band at ease to show them that if they needed to hear their album intact, sound pretty much the way they made it, uh-huh. um, I could recreate that for them. But then I wanted to just show a few nuances to, to, to hint at what could be and just follow my instincts and see if that was going to be interesting. And it was mm-hmm. a, it was a, a gamble for me because I could have, it easily could have gone the other way. And they said, wait, wait, what? No, no, no. Put, put that back. Uh-huh. But some of those gestures, um, one that I can really point to is the last song on the album. What's her name that I began rather than the way it begins on the album with just a solo piano and then sort of, um, bringing in slowly and gradually a string section. Uh-huh. It's something that they pointed to immediately. And that's, that was a huge moment for me because I thought, okay, my instincts um, are in the right place and it is speaking to them. And if I continue to follow these instincts, no matter what the project and who I'm working with, um, and I'm totally ready for someone to say, no, 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 that's, I hear where you're going, but, but let's talk about this. It's not quite right yet. Yeah. Um, but those instincts have served me well. Um, thankfully. Yeah. No, that's a, I mean, you wear those both very well, the boldness to take risks, but the kind of obvious humility of like, please tell me if this is wrong. Like, it just, it feels like you were, you would walk in a room, it, you would not be a hard person to give a note to and go, no, Tom, this is terrible. Ch- change it back. Like, I don't think people would feel that way, even though 
you no, got your egotism. No, I'm ready to, ready to come up with another version yeah. when it's needed. What about, you know, especially for some of our actors or, or musical theater people who enjoy plays as well, you've also done some um, composing original music for plays, right? Some big plays, um, as well as All's Well That Ends Well for Shakespeare in the Park, where I first encountered you. Um, but that, you know, you, you, whether Shakespeare in the Park, whether it's a new play, how do you see that role as, you know, sort of composing music for plays that are not musicals versus composing a musical? How do you take on that different task or what that's been like? Well, I love writing incidental music, and um, I did actually three scores for the park. I did Cymbeline and um, A Winter's Tale, as well as- Somehow all's well didn't end up on your Wikipedia. I'm like, can I get Tom? (laughs) I I know, I saw him in that room. He was there, well, get in there. Yeah, that's fine. Um, Yeah, um, Winter's Tale was the first one that I I did with Mm -hmm. Michael Greif, and then Cymbeline and All's Well Ends Well Mm. with Dan Sullivan and, it's it's a lot of music because oh, yeah. um, they both wanted not just transitions but underscore, and so it's a real skill to get out of the way of the language. Um, but uh, and are you fully understanding? Like, do you feel like you have to imbibe and understand the Shakespeare yeah. to write that? So you have yeah. to be like, I know this play backward. I always thought that when you write, I was like, he really is underscoring the moment. That means you have to like do text work. Yeah, no, I did. I did text work, and I, I read through it with the directors, went through yeah. it with them, and then um, on my own. And, and you get things also just from listening to it, uh-huh. being in the room. Um, so I love those experiences. Mm. And um, it's definitely a, a, a different part of you to, to, to write music that, that has to both tell story, but, but not be too present. Right. You, can, you don't want to take over because the language is in charge. You're, you're... I did get to write yeah. some songs, which was also fun. I think uh-huh. I wrote four songs in Cymbeline. And, um, so cool. Yeah, so so it was. Um, it's something that I love doing, and 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 if I could parlay that into film scoring, uh-huh. um, because that's some of my most favorite music. Yep. has been film scores. So um, so I would love to have that opportunity as well. It, but it seems like some of that, right? The pitch perfect acapella arranging happened. We're we're speaking that more and more into the world. Let's get more of that uh, for yeah. Tom. Come on. Yeah, that was that was a great experience. That's um, so good. How did that come about? How did you book that? And, and what was that like different than the, the theater world of it all? Well, I had met with, um, uh, I'm, I'm very friends with Jason Moore and uh, we were having lunch one day and he mentioned that he was taking a look at this. And I said, oh, you have to do that. And not only that, you have to hire me to work on that. Because <laughs> That's the confidence we all need, Tom. Here. That's it. You have to hire me. Yeah. Acapella was, was the, I was in yeah. uh, all four years of Columbia. So um so it became um, two teams. Uh, I, I was um, collaborating in New York with Ali D, uh-huh. um, and um, and then there was a, a, a wonderful team led by Deke Sharon on the West Coast, and um, we just kind of the the assignments were divided up. Like you're doing the acapellas, they're doing the the ladies. Is it like that? That simple? All, all all hands on deck. Um, yeah. But I was I was happily and luckily handed the riff off. Oh yes, and um, so I worked on the riff off for all in the bowl. Where they're down in the bowl, and they're all the the yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Ends with uh, no diggity. That was uh, yes, that that was was really fun to put together. I have all these demos. I would get all my friends from Broadway to come in and and do these demos. Just do the riff off. My Um, God, I didn't even know to give you credit for that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So some sometime I go and I listen to them. There's the songs that didn't make it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's that'd be a good like you know whatever decade. I guess it's been more than a decade. Whatever a re-release of you know what are the the, the non-riffs that didn't make it. There was actually um, a um, a Christmas album that was going to be done, um, and um, sadly it didn't it didn't uh, come to be. But there was an arrangement that I did. This was again being led by Jason Moore of um, "In the Bleak Midwinter" with River, mm-hmm. um, and um, Adrian Warren and uh, Emma Hunton are singing against mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. It's quite beautiful. So I'm I'm sad that, that never saw the. The light of day, but we're gonna bootleg that in conjunction <laughs> with this podcast. Put it on; it's in the show notes of the podcast. Click it. We're gonna include it as a secret bootleg for right. all of you listeners. Um, well, I love that. Leads me just to the last question. That we'll take a little break. Um, it's just talking about collaboration, right? So you've worked with these amazing playwrights, lyricists, screenwriters, and you know all different, also musical teams. What is that collaborative process for you? Especially now, it seems like in 2024, a lot of this is happening remotely and digitally. It's not the same that maybe as being in a room you're tinkering around the piano, someone else is, is with you. How does that work with the back and forth of, you know, are you sending each other files back and forth? Are you, you do a bunch, they do a bunch. How does that work in general when you're doing that kind of collaboration? 
Well, I got used to that early on, even before um, the internet, because Brian Yorkie and I were often on other coasts, opposite coasts, I should say. Mm. Um, so we would work from, I think at that time, I was using a mini disc player in the 90s, huh. a little microphone, and then I would have to take the mini disc and convert it into a CD and... And then mail it to him? Or, yeah, I don't even remember when I started emailing music files um, mm -hmm. or if he would just be on the phone or if we would just hear it for the first time together in rehearsal. But uh -huh. um, but it's certainly ideal to be in the room. Um, but now you can really through Zooms and then through um, voice memos, uh -huh. um, you, you can get a lot accomplished. And, and what does that look like in terms of, assuming maybe something you're composing and someone else is writing the lyrics for, which I know it's not always identical to that process, but if that's the process, are, are you, you compose first, then someone adds lyrics? Do you have the lyrics that inspire the composition? Do you do it all different ways? Is there is there sort of one way that you tend to like to go back and forth? It's not one way. It could be either. Um, often I'll get a lyric first because that's just feels that feels organic to the process figuring out what the song is going to, to literally say and um and and what's so amazing about working with brian is that brian is so musical i'll get a lyric that's beaded out in terms of the rhythm uh -huh. so it's very easy to write with brian there's already a container I'll, of like it's going to be yeah, this kind of line you don't have to sort I'll, of figure I'll that get, out i'll get a kind of musical tempo and and, and feel uh -huh. immediately from staring from looking at his lyrics but um uh -huh. that's been the case with all the uh, Amanda Green, Nell Benjamin, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh -huh. and then now working with Cameron Crowe. Um, it's just it's just an incredibly exciting process. Uh, Michael Corey on Flying Over Sunset, um, where, um, you know, when, you, when you're working with someone new, you have to just get a sense of how the process works yep. um, and, and, and sort of get your, um, your, you know, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, just, just kind of feel out where how everyone creates. Yep. Um, but once you you kind of hit that sweet spot, then then I the writing for me usually happens fast and furiously. I love it. All right, we're gonna take a short break because I want to dive deeper into this into the composition process on the back end. So a quick break. We're back in a flash. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Okay, we're back with the great Tom Kitt, and we're going to dive a little deeper into the process. So I want to talk about like what that composition process looks like for you personally. Maybe before we get into the specifics of composition, I would just love to kind of hear from a work ethic perspective. You know, now you're juggling three kids, many projects, lots of different hats. We talked about the five or six different hats you might wear within an artistic process. What does that creative um, time for you look like? Are you a set 4am to 7am? I do all my composition person. <laughs> How do you sort of sit down at a piano and, and carve that time out for yourself? Well, I do like to work early. That's when mm -hmm. I find myself the most um, charged and inspired. In the evenings, I tend to get tired and um, an idea will just start to get heavy. Uh -huh. But usually in the morning, I just feel a kind of rebirth and, and energy to get going and figure things out. Um, and I have started as early as uh, I, I was on vacation actually um, over the break. And there was one morning I woke up at, at 4.30. I couldn't, I just, once I started thinking, I couldn't, hmm. couldn't stop. So I went down to the lobby and worked from five until eight o'clock in the morning. Hmm. Um, so it's, if it's going to happen at a burst, it's usually in the morning and it'll, it'll, it'll be, it depends on how I'm working. If I'm, if I'm looking at something in terms of lyrics, I'll, I'll sit with the document in front of me and just, start to try to formulate some thoughts. If it's music, I, I, I will sit at the piano or sit in, at, at, as I am right now, my keyboard is literally right here in front of me. Mm -hmm. um, and I should play us a little something, to, Tom, while, while we're chatting, if you want to you know, tinker around. Let's see what, let's do some composition right here on the pod. Why not? But yeah, just start to tinker around and see what's, yeah. what's possible. And usually something will form, even if it's something on the way to an idea that I'll come back to later. 
And is it more of a tinker? Like you're gonna sit down like with a blank page and tinker or, or do, do you like, do you hear melodies come to you? Like when you woke up at 4.30, you were like, oh my God, I've got something. Or was that like, I'm solving the crossword puzzle from what was already there from yesterday? It's usually not hearing a melody. It's usually I'll sit down, look at the piano and then just start to play some chords that mm -hmm. will start to turn into something. And what, like, what, what is that experience? Like I, it's, I can understand the experience of writing words as someone who's not musical myself. Like. How do you see the see or hear? Like, how does chords turn to eventually the full orchestration? Obviously, you're not going to tell us all how to be composers, but like inside your brain, how does boom, boom, whatever, then eventually turn into a full song? Like, I, I guess that's so opaque to me as someone who's not musical in that way. Well, if I'm writing a song by myself, usually the lyrical ideas will come with melodies. So I'll have something that I'm ruminating on and then I'll just start to form some ideas. And then I have to de determine whether I continue with the lyric or I continue with the music. Uh -huh. um, often I'll continue with the lyrics so I can get a form and then I'll go back to the, to the music and write it to that lyric. And music but, means melody? Like you're going to hear a melody? Yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, melody, some kind of contour. Um, I wrote a song actually on break in my head. I hadn't even actually tried it on the piano until I got home, but it was, it was, it was kind of hooky and there was an energy that for me was every time, sometimes when I look at the lyric, even if I had music in my head previously, I'll forget uh -huh. what the music is, but this was so <laughs> strong an idea for me that I never, as soon as I looked at that hook, it suggested the music right Okay, away. here here's a dumb question because I feel like this is what would happen to me if I tried to write music. Do you ever like write something in your head and be like, this is the greatest thing ever and then discover this already fully is a song? Like, um, I feel like I'll do that where I'm like, did I make that up or am I singing something that I've already heard? No, th th that happens sometimes. Sometimes it'll be something I've already done. It's actually a better- <laughs> I already wrote this song. Copying for myself. <laughs> that I can... But yes, and, th and then and it's like, okay, there's something about the energy of this music that is that is speaking to me how do i make it my own how do i uh -huh. how do i ride this energy in a new way um, yep. it's it's much better if you recognize that hopefully uh, you, it won't come to be that some years later someone <laughs> will get a phone call you'd be like whoops this sounds <laughs> yeah. similar yeah and then what about we talked a little with the orchestration process you know when you're adapting an alanis or a green day or you know any of these wonderful things that you've adapted or, or um orchestrated i should say you know, what are the things that you're thinking about that turns it into, because I want to talk a little bit about pop versus musical theater sound. What do you feel like turns it more into a musical theater applicable song compared to a pop song? Like, what are some of the changes that you know going in? I'm probably going to be doing this to this Green Day song. Well, I don't know if I know before I get into the process and, um, and the story. It's really about the, um, about the book informing how the music is going to be. But um, most importantly is to come into the process with a real knowledge of the sonic palette that already exists. Mm -hmm. um, the, so, so I knew with American Idiot, Jagged Little Pill, that there was going to be, um, that I wanted to lean on the brilliant work that was done on the record um, and know that um, and then see where at, uh, a new adaptation might, might speak to the work. So for example, a song like you ought to know, right? An iconic, uh -huh. groundbreaking rock song. Um, but when we saw how it functioned in the story, um, it became obvious to us that the song needed stillness at the beginning and needed uh -huh. sort of a quiet simmer from uh -huh. the character. So rather than begin with a groove, begin a little at a time, begin a little stark, mm -hmm. um, and then see where it leads. So that informed everything mm -hmm. as the song begins. And then it's how does that build, build, build. And then when do you actually drop into the groove? Yeah. And that becomes the second verse. Yeah. Um, same thing with, I, I, I reference what's her name. Um, um, I knew I was eventually going to get back to the groove of the song. Um, I delayed it for the whole first half. Uh -huh. And then there's a little musical interlude that then sort of brings on the electric guitars. And then when uh -huh. we drop into the, um, I would say, what is the B section of that song? Yep. Um, then you have the full on groove, but it's, it's a little bit of a puzzle. It's, it's, it's yep. between the album and as, and how we know the music and what the musical is doing that makes it want to feel a little bit different. Again, serving the composition, not changing yep. anything. Um, but, um, in terms of the DNA of the song, yep. but, but, uh, one thing that really spoke to, to, to Billy Joe Armstrong was when I, I referenced George Martin mm -hmm. um, and his work with the Beatles. 
because you look at a song like Yesterday, which would be wonderful on a solo guitar, but how much does that string quartet add? Uh -huh. um, and I think that in many ways, George Martin was the fifth Beatle, all of the uh -huh. orchestral work that he did. And when I mentioned that is how I saw my work on American Idiot, that, uh -huh. that, um, Billy Joe got that right away. Yeah, you just called yourself the fifth Beatle. I mean, this is the kind of confidence we're talking about. No, but it is so, I mean, that is so, uh, it's so interesting and it's so like theatrical in a way, what you're describing of like the effect of, you know, and I got to see you ought to know a bunch of times, like the effect of that growth, that build, which is like the building blocks of theater is always this build and change yeah. is so satisfying theatrical. So theatrically, when we then get to the concert moment where it's like, now this is the song that we've we've expected, we've earned it, we've built toward it. It's really interesting and, and theatrical. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd love to talk, because I do think like you are, you know, uh, about as much of an authority on sort of Broadway pop rock as exists in this world. Like, you know, just from a stylistic perspective, if we maybe turn to the performer's point of view, which many of our, our listeners, of course, are focused on the performing style of it, you know, we know Broadway has long since been overwhelmed by pop rock. You know, 20 years ago, we started doing this and it was like, you should have a pop rock song. That's the future of Broadway. Because now it's like, that is clearly the present of Broadway is, is pop rock. You know, do you still see these styles as distinctly different musically? Like, I'm not always sure I can tell when it feels like, well, this is broad. This is a song being popified or this is a pop song being Broadwayified, or, or I'm not even sure those feel like completely distinct um, categories, but do you feel like there is such thing as like a pop rock sound, which is different than a Broadway sound in 2024? I always get nervous when people try to make generalities about styles or, you know, functions of music. Um, I think that the term rock musical came out of a time when it wasn't seen very much on uh -huh. Broadway stage. So, um, it really did, um, clue in for people that that this was the sound you were going to be hearing. You're not going to see the music man tonight. You're seeing something but, different. Yeah. But now um, there are so many wonderful musicals being written that incorporate, a, you know, a huge yep. palette of, of styles. And, and so I, I feel like what, what, what for me, the constant is, is that songs written for the theater need to tell story and however uh -huh. their musical needs them to. Uh -huh. um, and if you're going to say, I'm going to write a punk, I want to write a musical that incorporates punk rock. Punk rock has a DNA to it that you're going to want to utilize. Uh -huh. but, you know, if you talk to Billy Joe, Billy Joe talks about his influences, the Beatles being a huge one. Uh -huh. So even in his own writing, there are other influences outside yeah. of what you might term punk rock. Um, so at the end of the day, you're just trying to draw on what's going to tell the best story, what's going to serve the dramatic moment. And then if you have a certain um, idea about how you want the music to feel, how you want it to sound, you have to know what that language is. Uh -huh. um, so I think that authenticity is all about how you see the musical feeling and sounding and what kind of story that you're telling. Yep. Um, but you can get into the weeds a little bit about um, how pop is working in this versus this. And this is a Broadway sound versus a non-Broadway sound. Um, I, I, I don't know necessarily um, if I would want to get too bogged down by all of that and just yeah. say, when I hear, when, if I break down the production on this Alanis Morissette song, I hear how the instruments are functioning, how they're talking to one another, yeah. hear how it's arranged, um, the kind of sounds the guitars are getting. Um, but at the end of the day, they come out of what someone wrote. And yeah. you can't just put on, you know, the Alanis Morissette hat and uh -huh. be Alanis Morissette. She brings her natural gifts to the writing. And that's, that's at the end of the day, what defines the show. Yep. No matter how the instrumentation is, it's, it's how do you write music? And that's going to be the, the sort of lifeblood of the show. Yep. Well, what about from the performer's perspective? You know, when you're in the room auditioning actors, whether you're going to have a big voice in them passing or not the audition, but, you know, what, when, what is the creative team looking for? from a musical theater actor when you're singing in a pop rock context of a show. And what, what are some of the things that, you know, it would be helpful, I guess, for our, our artists to hear of like, oh, she didn't, like, are people saying, I don't know if she's got the right sound for this show, or I don't know if she gets the style or the vibe. Like, I think that's the kind of thing I think a lot of our students are concerned of like, am I bringing in enough of a Green Day vibe and what that might be if I'm auditioning for American Idiot? Or am I, do I feel Alanis Morissette enough 
for this show or for maybe my role isn't that, but do I need to still show that I've got some idea of that style? Like, how, how do you think about that from a performer's perspective? Well, I, I think about it the same way that I do as a pianist. If someone expects me to come in and play a certain style mm-hmm. of music, and if someone hands me sheet music that is from this musical versus this musical, can I, as a pianist, is my knowledge of music enough to make both songs sound the way they need to? So uh-huh. I think as a singer, um, how do you reference this style versus this style? And how does it all feel musical and natural to your sound? Uh-huh. Um, you know, Elizabeth is a wonderful example of someone who can do everything, right? Yep. Um, you mentioned she was just, you were just hearing opera in the other room. Uh-huh. Um, and this is coming from the same voice that was belting um, Forgiven yep. um, eight shows a week. Within that same musical too, also singing plenty of kind of legit different, I mean, just so much range, even within that musical. I was like, my God, you gave me a masterclass vocally. And she was not straight tone belting the entire uh, show, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, so, so it's really about what you, how, what kind of artist do you want to be? What kind of music do you want to be interpreting? Yeah. Uh, do you want to be able to do this show versus this show? I don't think you should put pressure on yourself. Yeah. Uh, my friend Daisy Prince, uh, I said words of wisdom, which is if you do one thing really well, that's a lot. And don't put pressure yeah. on yourself to do everything well. Yeah. Um, Obviously, if you can, great. But the most yep. important thing is if you're coming in for a certain show and you've done some research and the show has um, a palette like such and such, mm-hmm. you need to be able to walk into the room and interpret the material the way the creators are are hoping to hear. That's yep. going to be important. Well, it's really interesting the way you talk about from behind the piano too, that you're showing a fluidity of I can play this and this and I can match what the moment needs. I do think sometimes actors are a little afraid of going, if I show you this other side, you might decide I'm not punk rock enough for this. Or if I show you this sound in my voice, you might think I don't sound, I don't sound right. And they sort of almost try to almost be forcing the their voice into something that they may be expecting and, you yeah, to hear. And, and decide if you want to sing that music. And mm-hmm. if you're going, if you are singing punk rock, if you are singing a rock show, it's going to be taxing in a certain way. Yeah. I'll never forget when Maren Maisie said to me uh, when she um, uh, uh, was was rehearsing next to normal, and she just said, "You know, this is my instrument, and this is how yeah. I speak through it." And 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 I don't know if it, if you're needing it to happen like this in this moment, you may be used to. And I said, I said, Maren, you're here because I revere you yes. as an artist, and I want your version of the character. Yes, and it was that again. Another great lesson for someone who just comes in and says, this is my instrument. I'm going to protect it, but I'm, I'm going to go um, to be umpteenth to give you everything you need. Yep. But, um, you know, I can't change the DNA of who I am and I don't want to do something that's going to that's going to hurt my instrument. So well, everyone has back to be really knowledgeable about that and upfront about that. And because yep. your voice, especially, is that's going to be everything you need to protect it. It's your it's it's your life's worth. Yeah. Well, I mean, coming back to that idea of, you know, the confidence of I belong in this room. I, I often tell young actors that you cast me. You don't always have to say that out loud, but I'm like, remember, they cast you. You've been cast correctly in the show. Assume it's not a mistake. And so then what can you do from from your body, from your instrument? What What is your artistry bringing to it? Yep. You know, we, we want that perspective, hopefully, if we've, we've cast you. Yep, yep. Is there anything else from, you know, performance perspective, just from being on the other side of the table, seeing so many auditions, seeing so many amazing performers work, you know, any kind of tips that you would have to a young performer as an interpreter of your material, as a collaborator with you, just as they're auditioning, anything that you you go, I really wish young actors knew this a little more. A couple quick things I would say. One, don't have anything in your book that you don't like singing. Mm. Don't put things in your book to check boxes. And if you need to check boxes, make sure that every song, no matter what style, um, that it speaks to you the same way. You are mm-hmm. hoping that someone in the room might say to you, hey, can we hear something else? Because mm-hmm. you have eight or nine other things that you are dying to sing. That mm-hmm. um, so, uh, and, and don't populate your book with a million things. Just have mm-hmm. your, 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 you know, your true, true, you know, tried and true songs that, mm-hmm. that just, again, speak to you and, and you can't wait to sing. Mm-hmm. Um, walk into the room confident. Um, the room is, is hoping that you are the person. So ride that energy. Um, and even if you don't necessarily get the job, if you wow the room, they're going to take notes and they're going mm-hmm. to call you back for other things. Mm-hmm. Every good audition moves the needle for you, even mm-hmm. if it doesn't mean you get that job. Um, and 
take your time. Um, One of the things that I see um, that um, speaks a little of, um, of being new or having lack, lacking some experience is someone who tries too hard to put over any kind of movement or gestures Mm -hmm. when they're singing. Um, It's something that uh, working with an acting coach, getting into an audition workshop Mm -hmm. and just finding a way to relax. Um, I always want to see the musician in the, in the singer. I don't need someone to motivate story if the Uh song doesn't want it. Uh You're doing a pop song, for example, and there's a lyric and you have some music before the next lyric, Uh someone who kind of looks around the room or takes a big breath or Mm -hmm. tries to just fill the space, Mm -hmm. uh, decide if that's the right song for you. And if it is, then you have to figure out how stillness um, and confidence exists in that moment and not trying too hard. And all of these things, just your ease in the moment, both musically and in terms of just feeling um, sort of at ease are going to speak to um, everybody um, on the other side of the table. Yeah, that's great, great advice. All right, well, what about, and please only share what you feel comfortable with in terms of your your personal life, but getting to experience a little bit of the college process yourself as a parent now, your oldest is a graduating senior, and, you know, I understand potentially considering to dabble in the music, maybe the theater world, and we'll, you know, we, it seems like there's still some some possibilities there. So how did you navigate him expressing that interest and then you trying to kind of evaluate the college process and what he might get out of college and that same thing that you tried to do yourself at 16, 17, all those years ago. Well, I'm very happy that my son um, identified early on a passion for something. I think Mm -hmm. that that's huge. If that was everything for me, I knew that music was going to guide my life and it's the same for him for acting. So uh, Rita and I wanted to make sure that we um, were were presenting, helping him find destinations that were going to be um really wonderful for Mm -hmm. that part of him um but he's a teenager so there was a little bit at times of a lack of urgency about it and Uh it's a huge process to to get all of the materials together um his school was i can't say enough about how how wonderful they were in driving this process Mm -hmm. meeting with us um but it's a lot. It's a lot that you have to do. This is uh, not new information to anyone listening to this podcast. They're all like, yes, we know, Tom Kidd. It's very yeah, hard. Well, it's a difficult process. Like we've been through. <laughs> um, but, but at the end of the day, I also feel like Michael um, was, um, he, he just had his, his, his sights set on mm-hmm. um, a certain kind of place that he wanted to be at to help yep. his growth and to, dis- to, to pursue what he wants to do. So um, you know, the other great thing about this, about the school that he goes to is they, they drew a limit on the, um, on the number of schools he could apply to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it wasn't going to make him too scattered, um, uh-huh. and, and just brought a little more focus in the process. And what do you see as the value of college for him in this field specifically, you know, and recognizing obviously not all of our listeners have EGUPT winning, uh, parents to help guide them and maybe even potentially help make connections, those kind of things. But did that influence how you thought about school for him of going, Hey, we already know. I know some people, I kind of know enough in the business. I think so many of our parents are in the opposite situation where they go, I know nothing about the business. I need a place that's going to teach him something like, did that factor into, you know, the school needing to have a showcase or the school needing to have, you know, any of those kind of things in the way that you considered, um, him looking at undergrad? Well, I don't want to be the kind of parent who says, well, because it was like this for me, this uh-huh. is how it's going to be for you. You know, um, my, my children need to come to their own conclusions and find their own path. But I can say that, and granted, there are plenty of people who have discovered stardom at an early age um, who, who, you know, may have spent only a small time in college or, or not mm-hmm. gone to college. And it is quite a commitment in, in all respects. Yep. Um, but what I found for me is that I needed to grow up a little bit and, uh-huh. um, and the experience of being on my own in a wonderful place to get an education and discover new things, be in a place like New York city where, um, the city itself was an education. Um, I just was a very different person at 22 than I was when I arrived at uh-huh. 18 and I needed that time. And, um, I think the person I am, the artist I am, um, that experience was everything for me. So, um, I think that my son is going to benefit from having 
these four years to continue his growth, to have yeah. a sort of um, not worry about having to get out there and work and find employment, yeah. um, but but continue to experiment and, and find who he is and be around people who are going to inspire him and teach him as well. Yeah. Um, anything you feel like if you did it again and you're going to get to do it twice more, anything you feel like you learned from just the college process, could be the college theater process, but also just the kind of college process of going, God, I can't believe I have to do this twice more. Like anything you feel like next time I'm taking this into it. Oh, if I was going, if I myself was going into college? No, no. I mean, for your kids, cause you got to do it twice more for your, I'm saying you got, you got to go through this process again. Is there anything you go, all right, next time I'm going to say this sooner, this uh, I'm not going to stress as much about like anything you feel like you learned from going through the college process? I don't know. I don't I mean, I, I think that, that my kids are all, um, they just wow me in so many ways. And, and mm -hmm. I have the confidence that when they get there, they're going to get everything they need out of it. Uh, I mean, if I looked at my own experience, again, like, like high school, it took me a little bit to get the seriousness of where I was. And, mm -hmm. um, but, um, but once, once I was there, I really just immersed myself and, and did a lot of activities and got, got a lot out of, out of the experience. And I hope that that, it's the same for my kids. We just had a lot of parents slam on the brakes on different highways across America going, what? Your kids wow you? They were so, they did it all themselves. They're like, I can't get my lazy kid to do an essay. I'm just saying, this is not everyone's experience of the process, but so awesome. And, and I guess a testament to you that that's how you feel about it. That's really great. Um, yeah. All right, my last question is a silly one. It's just, are we going to get a Tom Kitt-led performance musical soon? Right, you see how Lin-Manuel puts himself, he double dips in all of his Disney properties. And, and, you know, can, can we get that? Can we get a, a Tom Kitt leading a, a musical? Is that coming on the horizon? I don't know. I really enjoy uh, watching these incredible, sure? brilliant performers. Alicia Keys, maybe you can step in and uh, <laughs> is there not a role for Tom Kitt to get out there? I, I, I love being on my side of the table. And An acapella coming out? No. Up and handing over to these brilliant artists. Um, you know, there was something that, that Green Day said um, uh, when they saw American Idiot, and they said we've we've had to be Green Day our whole lives, and now we get to sit back and watch someone else be Green Day, and they just found mm. it so inspiring. And um, you know, I think that that I, I just get so much out of watching other people up there and uh, take something that I created and run with it and speak mm -hmm. to it in ways that I didn't even know existed. There, there's, at some point, there existed the Tom Kit band. Is that still around? Is it? Do we get to see now, you there? There's something now. If I was able to get the band together and do more performing and find myself someday at a place like the Bottom Line, that you got two tickets. You got two tickets who were purchasing yeah. for front row for that. I promise. But yeah, the dream of the singer songwriter. I made an album in the pandemic. Yes, uh, with yes. Smith, of course, among other brilliant performers, um, called Reflect. So, so that's something that I would love to do. So cool. Um, you've given so much wonderful advice already to, to art, especially in the, in the room. And you talked a little bit about your own parent experience. Is there any other advice that you would just give to our parents out there? You know, many of our listeners, of course, are parents um, of students who go through this process. You know, any advice from, uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be for the college part of it, but just as a parent of a performer in this industry, you know, in terms of what, what you have seen work and not work um, as people have navigated it? Um, I think try to listen to your kids, try to play both parent and support. Um, they are teenagers, so there is going to be a little bit of a, of a lackadaisical at times, I imagine, and, and the urgency in them might not be the urgency in you. Um, but, but just try to be gentle and not force anything mm. um, and do whatever you can to, to push them to educate themselves because it's a big commitment and it has mm. to be the place that they are feeling is going to speak to them. That being said, we know that the college process is so competitive and so difficult that there is a, there is a sense of, well, where will we get in? What will our mm -hmm. options be? Um, but um, I think the more that you listen and just try to guide, the better. You heard it here, folks. Tom Kitt, an advocate for gentle parenting. My parents disapprove of Elizabeth and my gentle parenting, but you know that's a whole other podcast for us to, to get into. <laughs> um, Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show today. This was such a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And I wish everybody out there good luck. Oh, heck yeah. He's great, isn't he? He's just 
the best. Um, I'd really love chatting with Tom, a font of knowledge and an awesome guy to talk to. I do say so. Um, this is actually going to be a relatively quick takeaway. I'm now becoming a joke as I say that every time and it's basically the same like the takeaway, but it is late and I'm going to try not to make you listen to my scratchy voice any more than you absolutely have to. Um, I did think some really great advice in that end section, though I also think Tom uh, spoke really well for itself there. So I just, you know, co-sponsor what he said there. Um, I just do want to expand a bit more on what we were talking about with confidence. I know we've talked about the importance of confidence before, but it is a topic worth hitting a few times from different angles, if I do say so myself, and I do say so myself, and I say it confidently. Um, We've talked before about that idea of quiet confidence versus loud humility. For those who are wondering, you want the former, not the latter. We, We want the quiet confidence, but we don't want the loud humility. And then, of course... You know, we want to be more humble than, of course, being arrogant, and being arrogant would be be a bad thing. But that too often what we see in this process, especially with young people, is leading with self-doubt instead of self-belief. And we just need to find that self-belief. I want to expand on it a bit from the angle that Tom was talking about in his confidence to take risks and add in his artistic perspective into rooms. You know, I think confidence can come from so many different places, from, you know, the privileges that you're born with, from the way the world treats you, from positive reinforcement, from your parents. I'm sure there's a hundred other ways it can be found. And I think you often have multiple avenues for confidence in different things. Sometimes it's got to come from a, a certain kind of self-love for yourself. Sometimes you might draw from a certainty that you have in an ability and you can kind of draw that into the other area of confidence. But what, what I will throw out there is that having confidence is table stakes, walking into an audition room or really walking into any kind of artistic process. Again, it bears repeating, I do not mean cockiness or swagger or some of the ways that confidence can manifest itself, though I will say sometimes a bit of swagger doesn't hurt in an audition room. But I do mean, when I talk about confidence, that honest belief that you might be best for the part. In Tom's case, it's the honest belief that he has something to say, something of value to contribute to an artistic room, including an artistic room that might have multiple platinum Grammy award-winning artists, right? In the college auditions, often we're talking about the confidence that you actually do belong at the school you're auditioning for. It's cliche, but it's true. If you don't believe in yourself, nobody else is going to believe for you. The other people can affirm you. They can verify your self-belief, or of course, those people could choose to reject you and shut you down. But before they have that ability to affirm, there has to be some part of you that raises your hand and says, me, I think it should be me, right? Discounting again, those rare, rare exceptions where someone does truly pluck you out from obscurity and say, no kid, you do have it what it takes. Stop, stop doubting yourself, right? It just has to start with that self-belief for you. And again, I've talked about it before, I think too often, we kind of have this fantasy of maybe somebody will see me even though I don't see myself. If I, if I play it just cool enough, they'll learn that they love me before I even realize I love me. And that is more of the fantasy. That is more of the exception than the rule. You know, I often use that term table stakes when I say confidence is table stakes. I often use that specifically when I'm talking about joy. And I still really, truly believe that. That you have to want to be in the room and you have to want to be singing these songs and doing these monologues that you've picked from the entire canon of possible material. You have to say, I'm so excited to be here and do this, right? That's absolutely true, but I'm gonna add in that importance of confidence at almost the same level. You have to want to be there and you have to believe that you belong there. Those are the table stakes. That's what you have to bring to the table as you walk into an audition room. I'm gonna tell a quick story that has always stuck with me, which is when I was working at the Hudson Valley one year, uh, and along with being in the shows, I was running the apprentice company, which basically means I was like helping organize classes for the younger actors to learn and develop. So I had this kind of like mentorship relationship with a lot of them. We're doing King Lear, I'm playing Edgar, there's this tricky part of the show, if you don't know it, where Edgar becomes poor Tom. He's this like bedlam beggar, this kind of crazy person. Through the middle parts of the play, he kind of goes into hiding to become this, and then he emerges a triumphant hero at the end. It's a weird play and a really tricky part to figure out as an actor. And there's a lot of nonsensical text that seems like it could almost be comedic, but it's not always obvious. Like, is it comedic? Is it dramatic? What, what's going on? It's not always obvious what to do or what he is doing at different times in these kind of multi-character scenes. So... With the luxury of a rehearsal process, which we were really lucky to have a long rehearsal process at Hudson Valley, I'm in there, I'm trying weird choice after weird choice after weird choice, and the director, with whom I have this really great working relationship, is basically choice after choice telling me how that didn't work, and what if we try this, and then I come up with a different choice, and he goes, nope, that definitely doesn't work. Very much in the mold, actually, of what Alex Brightman was talking about, was sort of throwing paint against the wall in search of that great artistic choice that's really going to stick. 
And one of the apprentices, so one of the people that I was kind of a mentor for, to, after a few weeks of this, she come up to me kind of like breathless, like kind of like awe saying, you know, is, uh, she just watched me make like another choice that I brought in that they didn't do it for the director. I think I was like trying to play it like Gollum at this point. So I'm doing this kind of weird like Gollum thing that was uh, probably pretty ridiculous. And she asked me, you know, it's kind of like sheepishly, she asked, who gave you permission to do this? Meaning like, who gave you the right to potentially waste everyone's time by making a bunch of choices that might not work. I think she honestly thought like the director pull me aside and say, hey, it's going to look like I'm telling you this is bad, but keep doing this more and more and more. And I, I, it's really struck me because I, I looked at her and I said, you know, me, that I, I gave myself permission to make this series of choices because I trust that I'm working in collaboration with this director to earnestly work toward the best choice we could mutually come up with. And that meant me bringing my fullness of my own creativity and artistry to the role. If I was too concerned with getting it right or not making a bad choice or afraid of taking a risk, I would actually be doing myself and the play and the director and the role a disservice. But I could tell for this young actor who definitely wanted to work in this way, she was saying this like, I, I wanna be like that, but how do you do that? That that missing ingredients was just the confidence, the confidence to be wrong, to take that risk and give yourself permission to fail. And that takes a really a great deal of confidence to do. And with that, another episode of Mapping the College Audition is confidently in the books, produced by Megan Cordier and Kelly Prendergast. Follow us at Mapping the College Audition on Instagram. Rate and review us if you're feeling feisty or if you're feeling confident. Give us five stars if you're feeling really confident. And check us out for individual coaching at mtca.com. To my young artists mapping their journeys, which of the letters in Igapatu will be your first win? You're just going to need the confidence to do it. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.